1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Gretchen Rubin about happiness and the power of habit.
2: They're decisions that we've put on autopilot, so they take no effort or energy or willpower on our part.
1: This interview was recorded in front of a live audience at the Northside Festival in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, on June 10th, 2016. Here's Debbie Melman.
0: We usually think of habits in terms of health, smoking, bad, exercise, good. Gretchen Rubin wants us to think of habits in terms of happiness. Habits, she says, are the invisible architecture of our lives, and when we get them right, We're a lot happier for it. Gretchen Rubin has written several New York Times bestselling books about happiness, including Better Than Before, Mastering the Habits of Our Everyday Lives, and The Happiness Project. She also hosts a popular podcast with her sister called Happiness with Gretchen Rubin. She joins me today to talk about her life, her career, and happiness. Gretchen Rubin, welcome to Design Matters. Uh, Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Gretchen, you grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and I understand that you love dividing the world into categories, abstainers and moderators, radiators and drains, openers and finishers, marathoners and sprinters. Is that something that you started to do as a young child?
2: Um, Well, they say there are two kinds of people in the world, the kind of people who divide the world into two kinds of people and the kind of people who don't. Um, And I'm definitely the kind who does. And, yeah, I've always been really attracted to anything that is a system or that gives you a guide to the world, breaks things down. I don't know if anybody here is a fan of the book Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander, amazing book. Um, Anything that breaks things into categories... I feel like it's very, very helpful just in clarifying our vision of what's happening around us. What did you envision
0: yourself doing for a living when you were little?
2: You know, I never thought about it. And, 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 and now I look back and I'm really shocked. Like, I never thought about it. And um, I drifted into law school for, you know, went for all the wrong reasons. It was like, oh, you know, you can change your mind later. It's a great education. I'm good at research and writing. My father's a very happy lawyer. You know, like, I can always change my mind. Um, So I feel like I just was always sort of doing the next obvious easy thing instead of really sitting down and
0: asking myself what I wanted to do. I actually read, Gretchen, that when you were in high school and the Yale University recruiter came to town, you thought she was cool, smart, confident, and happy, and you wanted to be just like her. So (laughs) was that your sole criteria for choosing to go to Yale? Well, I knew it was Yale. So it was, it was I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> good choice. I, I chose my college because my best friend was going, you majored in English, but then decided to go to Yale law school. Why?
2: For exactly those reasons. Just like, I didn't know what else to do with myself really. And it so just wait, seemed so easier wait, to go to law So so you didn't know what else school. to do
0: with yourself. So law. Yeah, no, this is the
2: thing. So I write a lot about drift, and whenever I talk to graduate students or undergraduates, I always talk, I like made a vow that I would talk about drift, because the thing about drift is it sounds easy. Like, this is the easy way. In fact, drift is often extremely difficult. It's, you know, it was hard to take the LSAT, it was hard to go to law school, I took the bar exam, I clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor, I mean, it was hard. Um, But it was drifting because I didn't do it mindfully. I was just going along with whatever, like, the next obvious thing was. It's like, oh, you did really well on the LSAT. You might as well apply to law school. Oh, you did, you know, you got into Yale Law School. How can you say no to Yale? There are no grades there. You know, like, this is how I was making my decisions. And the funny thing to me is, like, I've met tons. I I speak every year to first-year medical students. And you think, you really have to be that kind of person to go to medical school, right? Because it's so specific and kind of gross, too. Like, really, who wants to go to medical school? And there's so many people who are like, well, my mom and dad are both doctors. Or, you know, I was really good in science, and everybody said I should be a doctor. And they get there, and they're like, They've done, they're doing so much work. And yet it's not the right choice for them because they haven't made a mindful decision. So I, I did it for all the wrong reasons.
0: I often tell people when they talk about feeling like they're not talented enough or capable enough or anything enough to do what they really want to do or if they feel like they can't do it because it's too hard that doing something that you don't really like is actually harder
2: yeah and in the end often people burn out and then you're like oh yeah I went to graduate school and like I have all this money that you know that I paid for it but now I've changed my mind and I want to do something completely different And the thing about drift is, like, I'm glad I went to law school. Like, it all ended up great. I had a great experience. I I don't regret it now. And a lot of people drift into things that make them happy. And so it's confusing because sometimes it works out fine. But um, that's almost just by accident. You know, it's not a good way to design your
0: life. You were the editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal and winner of the Edgar M. Cullen Prize. And then you clerked. For judge pierre laval and then went on to clerk for justice sandra day o'connor how did that happen
2: you know the same way it's like Drift. you drifted the, you into know, a like, clerkship like, with oh, a supreme you know, court justice no no i mean you know it was a huge amount of work um and i'm very good at doing what i need to get done and in, in fact that in, in my book better than before um, I developed a personality framework which in a, in a lot of ways explained me to myself because there were things about myself I had never understood, which is why is it that for me that I could pull that off um, in a way.
0: Do you think you're better at doing what is expected of you than what you really want to do?
2: That gets into my personality framework i'm good at both, but I have to clearly articulate what I want myself once I know, once I decided I wanted to be a lawyer, I was clerking for justice o- o'Connor. And I was and I decided I wanted to be a writer. So this meant starting over from zero. I had no clips. I had no short story. I had done no professional writing. Though I had been an English major, and I had been re- reading and writing my whole life. Um, and then I was like, okay, so what do I do? So I went and got a book from the bookstore, How to write and sell your nonfiction book proposal, and just did it. That was not hard for me. Once I said to myself clearly, this is what I want. But until I really grappled with it myself, then... It didn't, wasn't a counterbalance to outer expectations. But really, no one was pressuring me to go to law school. It wasn't like anybody was standing there with a whip. It was all self-generated in a way. It was just kind of mindlessly self-generated.
0: I want to ask you about your experience with Sandra Day O'Connor. What was it like working with her? I know you're still friends. What was the biggest... Well, so two questions. What, w- what was it like working for her? And what was the biggest thing you learned from her?
2: It's an amazing institution, the Supreme Court. The thing about the Supreme Court is even if you profoundly disagree with some of the justices, the fact is they are all highly conscientious people who are totally dedicated to a vision of what it means to be the United States of America. And everybody is doing their absolute best work at all times. And so it's very exhilarating to be there because it's just, if you've ever been in a place where people were really working at their top level consistently, it's exciting to be there. So it was an exciting place to work. And Justice O'Connor, she's a, you know, she's a character. Um, Elaborate. Yeah. Well, she just, she's, so, she's just so much the way that she is. And I'll tell you something, too. Supreme Court justices just get more and more the way that they are because they really are like the masters of their universe. Um, but I, I remember when I was writing The Happiness Project, I, I, uh, I said to Justice O'Connor, well, what do you think is the secret to happiness? And without a beat, as as if she had known this like her whole life, she said, work worth doing. It is actually really profound. And the more you think about it, the more kind of um, rich it becomes. And when you think like it's just three words, how much that captures. um, So I think that's a good
0: kind of indicator of the kind of person that she is. So speaking of work worth doing, you met the man you were going to marry, James Rubin, while you were in school. And upon graduating, you both moved to Washington, D.C., where you both worked with the Federal Communications Commission. Why? Yes. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, there was
2: a really great chairman there, Reed Hunt, who was doing like all these crazy things. I mean, you really do have to be kind of a regu- reg- regulatory lawyer type to think that it's really cool, but it... it, it If you're a certain kind of person, like there's really exciting
0: work to be done there. So what did you do? What were some of the things you actually impacted?
2: Um, Well, I was the chief advisor for cable and broadcast. So if there were issues related to those industries, um, I was like in charge of whether regulatory change, how that would play out. It sounds so boring, right? But it actually is really interesting.
0: Was it at this point you decided, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to be a writer?
2: No, I had already decided I wanted to be a writer, but I was doing the transition because I had to, write, I had to you know, write the book proposal, I had to come up with the outline, had to figure out how I was going to get an agent. And so kind of in the meantime, I was like, well, I'll get this other job. Because that was a political job, and political jobs don't usually last that long. So I was sort of like, I'm going to do this while I'm working on... Um, the book that I want to go out to the market with
0: so you literally went to a bookstore and bought a book about yes. how to write a book and sell a book and find yes. an agent yes and then I just followed the directions as if it were that easy yeah
2: now, now looking back I'm like wow, how to write how did a New York work? Times
0: best-selling book by yeah. Gretchen Rubin yeah yeah well that that book was not a bestseller <laughs> uh, the first one no. Well, you wrote your first book was the best-selling 40 ways to look at Winston Churchill. That's my really first well.
2: book. My first book was called oh, Love Sex. Power, Money, Fame, Sex: A User's Guide. It is an amazing book if I do say so myself. Um, yeah, it's sort of like the preppy handbook for if yeah. Machiavelli wrote the preppy handbook. Um, so that was really fun.
0: Yeah. But then you wrote Forty Ways of um, to Look at Winston to Church. Look at Winston Churchill, and then Forty Ways to Look at JFK. Yes. What made you decide to write these books? Was it sort of the Venn diagram of politics and writing?
2: You know, the um, all, I think from the outside, my books look very disconnected. But really, my subject is human nature. That is the thing that fascinates me. Like, why do people? Why do we do what we do? How do people change? Um, how do you understand people's behavior? There are weird patterns that repeat over and over like where does that come from all my books are related to different aspects of human nature and someone like Winston Churchill is a very good study because he's so g- gigantic he's so large and, and did so much and then also there's so much written about him and he himself wrote so much um, Same thing with JFK that you it kind of throws human nature into sharper relief because you can see things more clearly um, just because they're on such an
0: enormous scale you describe yourself as a street scientist. Yeah, right, yes. Why is that?
2: Because I do feel like there's things, you know, you can learn things about human nature by putting a bunch of undergraduates in a laboratory and asking them to eat marshmallows under certain conditions, and I definitely love reading those studies. But there's also things that you can just see from the world, that you can just hear or observe. And so someone like Samuel Johnson or La Rochefoucauld or sort of these lay observers of human nature, I think, are really more what I'm trying
0: to do. Your book on Winston Churchill was much more successful than your book on JFK, and I believe that led you to think about what makes you happy. Um, Is that what motivated your book, The Happiness Project, or why I spent a year trying to sing in the morning, clean my closets, fight right, read Aristotle, and generally have more fun?
2: You know, I was... um... And if you guys are from New York, you've been on this the crosstown bus across you know going across 79th. And um there was a lot of construction and it was raining, so the bus was going super slowly. And I had one of those rare opportunities for reflection. And J the JFK book had not come out yet. Um it was I was just finishing that up. And I thought, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, well, I want to be happy. But I didn't have any I never thought about happiness, how I could be happier what it meant to be happy and I thought I should have a happiness project and that was the word that I had and I went out the next day got a giant stack of books from the library and started researching happiness and it was just going to be for me just because I was curious and I do have this categorizing mind so I was like well how would you how would you do it how would you divide it up and like what what are the themes that would matter and then I just got more and more into it and I often go on these like side research projects like, I know a lot about Thomas Merton right now, um, like, for no reason other than I just get enthralled with something. But happiness just got bigger and bigger and bigger until finally I thought I should make this my next book. And that's how I got the idea for it.
0: Very early on in the book, you state I had much to be happy about. I was married to Jamie, the tall, dark, and handsome love of my life. We had two delightful young daughters. I was a writer after having started out as a lawyer. I was living in my favorite city. I had close relationships with my parents, sister, and in-laws. I had friends. I had my health. I didn't have to color my hair. But too often, I sniped at my husband or the cable guy. I felt dejected even after minor professional setback. I drifted out of touch with old friends. I lost my temper easily. I suffered bouts of melancholy, insecurity, listlessness, and free-floating guilt. Sounds like the average New Yorker. But you were determined to change your behavior and try to become happier. You set out upon a year-long exercise. Can you talk a little bit about what you did?
2: The thing about happiness is it can feel very abstract and transcendent and everything's tangled up and everything else. So I really tried to figure out how could I break it down into categories, like manageable, concrete things that I could do every day. Um, You know, not... A 10-day silent meditation retreat, not a trip to, you know, India, just normal, ordinary things I could do um, just as part of my usual routine. And so I divided into, because it was going to be a year-long project, I divided into 12 categories. So it was things like energy, friendship, marriage, fun, um, eternity, which is like my word for kind of spiritual, you know, transcendent things. And then tried to really think of three or four, like, very specific things that I could do to make myself happier. And what's interesting is, like, in a lot of ways, when I wrote my habits book, I understood much better what I had done then. Because a lot of it was about changing my habits in order to make me happier. But at that point, I was really thinking about resolutions because I was sort of in the New Year's resolutions mode. Um, But one of the things that I've really come to believe is, like... There's a lot of stuff we can do just as part of the regular day. You don't have to spend a lot of time, energy, or money um, for most of us to make yourself happier, healthier, more productive,
0: more creative. And so I was really trying to find out, well, what were those little things that I could do? It seems like the more you were nice to people and good to people, the happier you felt about yourself. Yep. And um, so according to some current research in in your book that I read, you say according to current research, the determination of a person's level of happiness genetic accounts for about fifty percent. Genetics. Life circumstances Some people are born ewers and some people are born Tiggers, and that's just kind of hardwired to a large extent. Life circumstances such as age, gender, ethnicity, marital status, income, health, occupation, and religious affiliation account for about ten to twenty percent and the remainder is a product of how a person thinks and acts. In other words, people have an inborn disposition that's set within a certain range, but they can boost themselves to the top of their happiness range or push themselves down to the bottom of their happiness range by their own actions. So, Gretchen, did you feel that the way you were living your life was making you less happy than your own set point? No, a hundred percent. Yeah.
2: No. And I mean, I think that's sort of what any happiness project would do. It's sort of like you could say, well, your natural range is say from six to nine. Well, you could be doing things that are making you more consistently at nine, or you could be doing things that are going to be put you, putting you more like the six, five, um, thing. And so what that's my whole happiness project was like, okay, given where I am, I'm a seven, which turns out is very typical, um, uh, on a, one of the scales that you can test yourself on. um, you know, how could I get myself up at the top, the top level instead of being down at the bottom level. So that means having more fun and more love and more enthusiasm, but also getting rid of things like anger, guilt, boredom, resentment.
0: One of my favorite lines in the book was that you wanted to change your life without changing your life. Yes. From the outside, it looks exactly, still looks exactly the same. Yes. Do you feel happier?
2: It, well, this is the interesting thing. Like, if I'm sitting on the subway staring into space, I'm still the same person. Like, I go back to my, kind of my natural temperament, but my experience of my life is much happier. Because I just, I, I've done so many things to make sure that I have more fun and more friends and, and also less guilt and less anger and less boredom and less annoyance. And I'm much clearer about my own values. It turns out that's very important for happiness. Like, does your life reflect your values? Well, what are your values? And how do you bring your life into harmony with your values? That's like a whole undertaking. Um, and then there's an aspect of happiness that took me a long time to understand, which is the atmosphere of growth, which is that we're happier when there's something in our life that's growing. And so maybe you're growing a garden, maybe you're raising a child, maybe you're training a puppy, maybe you're learning, new, you know, you're learning to start a podcast, you're um, working on a book in your free time, you're working on your French, you're practicing guitar, you're picking up meditation you have that feeling or you're helping someone else improve you know you're helping a nonprofit get their books in order you're helping your parents association organize some event for the kids like anywhere where you're making something better
0: growing learning that's a very important engine for happiness i do quite a lot of teaching and i find that many of my students are either waiting for happiness or planning ahead for happiness and it seems that it is not something that you can acquire with things as much as people imagine that this job or this house or this relationship or this whatever is going to bring me happiness. For anybody that is looking to try to become happier as is, what advice would you give them? Well,
2: it's complicated because I, do, I think there's a strong strain within the happiness discussion Like, you really have to stay in the present. But it's also true, and we all know this from everyday life, that a life that you only live in the present would not be a good life. Because there's a lot of stuff we could do right now, today, that would be totally great and fun, but we would regret it later, you know? So I think most of us don't want a life that is just a chain of immediate pleasures and gratifications, but like a whole, you know, an overview of a life well spent. So... Um, And so sometimes we'll do things that make us unhappy in the present because they make us happy in the future. But sometimes we get that wrong, you know, and that there's a whole field within happiness of trying to understand how do we make decisions better to be able to understand how we're going to feel about something in the future. Here's a tip if you're if you're if you're worrying about wondering about this yourself. Here's a tip. One of the best ways to know if something's going to make you happy in the future is ask somebody who's experiencing that does not make them happy? Because we're less different than we think. So if you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go to Disneyland with my two little kids, it kind of sounds like hell. Am I going to like it? Ask somebody with two little kids, what do you think of Disney? And they're going to be like, it's awesome, you know, because the fact is, it's set up for you. It's going to be, you know, you're probably going to enjoy it. Not necessarily. There are always, few, you know, you can always be an outlier, but it's a good indicator. If you go to a law firm and you say to a paralegal, hey, man, I'm thinking about becoming a paralegal. Are you having fun at your job? Are you happy? What are they going to tell you? I mean, you always have to allow for the fact that there's always going to be differences, but it's a really good way to get a sense of something. I think if I had to say, like, what is the thing to, like, get yourself happy? There's two ways to answer that, depending on how you frame the question. So one is relationships. Ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that a key and maybe the key to happiness is relationships. We have to feel... Like we belong, we have to be able to confide, we have to feel like we have intimate, enduring bonds, um, we have to be able to get support, and just as important, we need to be able to give support. So anything you do that deepens or, or, or broadens your relationships is something that's likely to make you happier. So you really want to think a lot about relationships. But another way to answer the question is through self knowledge, because really, more and more and more, I think this is true then you can only build a happy life on your own nature, your own values, your own temperament, your own interests. And so the more you think about what's true for you, the more you can make your life reflect your values. And, like, back to the thing about law school, is I didn't think, like, I never, I really, truly never crossed my mind to say, hey, Gretchen, do you want to be a lawyer? It, like, never crossed my mind. I know that sounds insane, but it was just, like, I didn't think about it. Um, but if I had... Uh, I might have thought about it differently. So you want to say, like, okay, everybody says it's totally fun to travel. Do I really like to travel? Do I really like to shop? Do I really like to ski? Do I really like to go to bars? Do I really like animals? Like, do I like watching TV? Do I like going to movies? I mean, there's a lot of things that people just assume are fun or worth doing that maybe are just not true for you. And it's crazy to me how many people have come up to me and said, oh, I just realized, like, I don't like the outdoors. Okay, that's a pretty big thing to cross off the list. But if you don't like the outdoors, then now you have more time for the indoors. But sometimes we don't want to admit what's true for ourselves um, or we can't, it, it's,
0: it's hard. It's hard to know yourself. One of the most poignant parts of your happiness project was in chapter five, when you talk about, the chapter is titled, Leisure, Be Serious About Play. And you write about the sadness of letting go of possibilities. Yeah, yes, yes. And, and in some ways, these types of questions remind me of that, where you come to terms with, well, maybe I'm, I'm never going to be Lady Gaga. You know, I'm, maybe I'm never going to be an Olympic champion.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. But even more than that, like, I think in a way that's less painful than like, like for me to say, you know what, I don't like music. I mean, sure, I like a song here and there, but I basically don't really enjoy music. And I get why other people do, and I see the cultural value, and I wish I enjoyed it because I see that people get so much pleasure from it. And so many people come up to me after I, after I admit to this, and they're like, Gretchen, give me an hour, and I'm going to teach you to love music. And I'm like, no, you're not, because <laughs> I don't like music. You know, and it's like, it's sad. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a cramped aspect of my personality. I wish it were not true, but it is true. And, but for a long time, I was like, you know, as a reader and a writer, my thing was like, if I read more books about music, then I would love, I would learn to love t- to listen to music, right? No, that's not the way you go about it. I, and I finally am just like, I'm the person who walks into the room and turns off the music, because I don't like the noise. And it's sad to admit that. It is sad. But that's who I am. And now I have more time to do other things, because I'm not like, oh, I should read a biography of Mozart. I'm like, I'll read my hundredth an- Biography of Winston Churchill.
0: This is a perfect segue to go into a conversation about your latest book, which is titled Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits to Sleep More, Quit Sugar, Procrastinate Less, and Generally Build a Happier Life. It's okay, I think, to admit that you don't like music and people might be puzzled by it, or some people might be puzzled by it, but essentially I don't know that it's necessarily bad for you I hate exercise I loathe exercise I hate exercising I hate thinking about exercising I hate not thinking about exercising how do you get to be able to do the things that you know are good for you but you don't want to do how do you break the bad habits of not wanting to do things that are good for you
2: um the only way that i can answer to that is by like really drilling down into you because there is no magic one size fits all solution it's really like you debbie let's talk about you are you a morning person or a night person night okay so you're never going to exercise in the morning like anytime you've tried to exercise in the morning it's not the exercise it's the problem it's the fact that you're trying to do it in the morning so there is no more so we've taken that off the table you're not going to get up early and go for a run okay um do you have an issue with time? Is time part of the problem or do you have plenty of time? I have plenty of time. You've got plenty of time. Okay. Do you, are you more likely to,
0: what, why do you want to exercise? Because I'm getting older and weaker and I want to live longer and be healthier. Okay. Do you think you could do something for
2: 20 minutes once a week? Yes. Okay. Then and you live in New York City. So yes. I'm gonna tell you to go to a gym where you can do high intensity strength training oh, yes. for twenty minutes I, once I, a week. I, I, I was very intrigued by that yes. in your book. Yes. There's all kinds of research about high intensity workouts and why they you can get really so I mean, so what my point is there are solutions when you think about what's true for me, what do I want, and how can I realistically get there? Because the fact that you could do if you could do it for twenty minutes once a week, you could make enormous progress. Now, would you be better off exercising five days a week? Maybe so. But the difference between doing once a week and nothing is huge. And, you know, once a week, 20 minutes, you can do anything.
0: Okay, let's talk about you.
2: Okay, yes. But my, my, point, is, my point is just Denial. A, but a lot of times when people... This is a great example that a lot of times when people have a problem, they're like, I need to have a global solution that works for everybody. Instead of saying, like, let's just think really, really, really specifically about me. When have I succeeded in the past? What appeals to me? Um, You know, because a lot of times it's just a very, very specific solution that works for one person, but that would not work for somebody else. Um, But instead we're kind of, like, looking for the, like, what's the best thing? A, A habits researcher was saying, like, well, I got a grant to figure out what are the best habits and I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> because that's like saying, I'm going to do research to find out what's the best time to go to bed. The best time to go to bed is 10:20 p.m. Well, well, what if you get up at 3 a.m. to go to a job? What if you have a newborn baby? What if you only need three hours of sleep at night? Which is true for a few, a few people, not many people. Like, that's a nonsensical thing. It might be true on average. It tells us nothing. So it's all about the individual.
0: How do you define Habit.
2: So a lot of times people with habit talk about repetition or frequency or familiarity of cues, but really I think that the key thing about habits is decision-making, a lack of decision-making. So habits are freeing and energizing because we're not deciding, we're not using self-control. Something's on automatic. Just the way you do not use self-control to brush your teeth you do not use willpower or make decisions. You know, nobody like, gets into a car, puts on their seatbelt and thinks, you know, I've been so good for a week. I'm going to take a day off of seatbelts today. I deserve a break. Or I'm going to be so good starting in January. Why should I wear a seatbelt now? Or I think I should go out and buy those boots because I've been so good about wearing my seatbelt. No, you just do it. <laughs> it's just an automatic thing. It doesn't, it's not, you don't consider it an imposition or a deprivation. It's just the way you do things. And I think that's where habits, it's their decisions that we've put on autopilot So they take no
0: effort or energy or willpower on our parts. You state that we repeat about 40% of our behavior almost every day. Yeah. And our habits shape our existence and our future. And you go on to state that if we can change our habits, we can change our lives. How can you actually change a habit? Well... That is the million-dollar
2: question. And, um, and there are so many kind of one-size-fits-all solutions, like do it first thing in the morning, which we know would not work for you. Um, start small. Give yourself a cheat day. Do it for 30 days. And those can work for some people sometimes. They don't work for everybody all the time. And what I found is that there are 21 strategies that people use to make and break habits. And sometimes people look kind of scared when I tell them they're 21. Like, I want three. Don't give me 21. But it's actually good because 21, some of these work very well for some people and not at all for other people. Some of them are available to us at some times in our lives, but not at other times. And so it's really, it's, there's no one answer. How do you change a habit? What you say is thinking about who I am and what I want, how could I use as many of these strategies as possible to get where I want to go? For instance, one of the most universal strategies that works for just about everybody is the strategy of convenience, and we've all experienced this in our lives. If something is easier to do, if it is even slightly more convenient, you're more likely to stick to it, and if it's inconvenient, you're less likely to do it. So for instance, they did this funny research where they had a salad bar, and they found out that if you had to use tongs instead of using a spoon, people would take less food because it's just like that much more work to use a tong. people would eat less or like if you want to not use your cell phone like I had this guy tonight. this friend of mine was like I really need to use my willpower to stop texting while I'm driving like can you help me break that habit I need to work on my willpower and my priorities and I'm like don't work on your willpower and your priorities man put it in the trunk don't put it in the glove compartment that's too close put it in the trunk or put it on silence in the back seat under your car where you can't get it then you won't have to use any willpower right um, so, because if it's so inconvenient, you're not going to do it. So, but but there's a lot of strategies where um, it really
0: depends on the person and it depends on the situation. Like what can what can work? One of the things that really startled me was reading that one third to one half of American patients don't take medicine prescribed for a chronic illness. It's a huge huge issue why are people so often unmoved by the consequences of their habits this is
2: this is the thing um that just came to me so powerfully looking at the research is like you cannot expect to be motivated by motivation and you cannot expect to be motivated by consequences and over and over people would be like if i could just make you understand how important it is for you to manage your blood sugar you do it and it's like that doesn't work like, it should work. Why? Why doesn't it work? Because that's not how people change. That's not, what make, that's not what make people behave differently. I mean, that's what my whole book is about, which is, let's say you want somebody to take their blood pressure medication every morning, giving them a long lecture, for some people that can work, but it very often doesn't work, and if it can work, it probably has worked, and so you don't have a problem. So that's what I try to do in the book, is like... If you have a situation where some, you, either you are doing something where you're like, I don't understand. This is so important to me. Why am I not able to do it? Or there's somebody that's, who's close to you or who is driving you crazy because they're not doing something that they're supposed to do. There's a staff meeting every Wednesday, and one guy's always late. What, what is up with that? Why can't he get there on time? Like, there are actually reasons. There are ways to understand that. And then when you understand it, then maybe you can think of how you could structure things Differently um, to
0: solve that problem. You write about how self control is a crucial aspect of our lives and state that people with better self control are happier and healthier, they have stronger relationships and more career success, they manage stress and conflict better, they live longer, they steer clear of bad habits. Yet one study suggests that when we try to use self control to resist temptation, we succeed only about half the time. I, that blew my mind. But, so, but that's why you want to use habits, because when you're using a habit, you don't have to use
2: self-control. And the, the research that is so crazy is that when they looked at people who were really, really high functioning, they thought that they would see that they had really, really high exercise of self-control. And what they found is that these people were using very little self-control, because they'd done everything on a habit. So one person's going through the day. Oh, my God, should I go to the gym? Maybe I should go to the gym. Maybe I should go after lunch. I think I'll feel more energetic if I wait until after that meeting. You know, and what should I have for lunch? Well, you know, I was going to bring a lunch from home, but I think maybe I'll do that tomorrow. And and, on, and then at the end of the day, nothing has been done, and the person's completely depleted and exhausted, and it stands in front of the refrigerator eating ice cream from the container at midnight. <laughs> Sounds like but, my life. But another person's <laughs> like, what do I do for lunch? I bring a lunch from home on Mondays. Do I go to the gym? Yes, it's Monday, so I go at 10 a.m. Like. These things can take nothing, so they don't have to use their self-control. So then when they need it, they have high reserves of it. Because when you're, when you're using habits, then you can save your self-control for things that
0: come up unexpectedly. You write that habit is a good servant, but a bad master and although you wanted the benefits that habits offer, you didn't want to become a bureaucrat of your own life, trapped in paperwork of its own making. So how can you avoid that? Is there any advice that you can give to people to understand the line between mindful and mindless habits?
2: Well, this is an issue that doesn't affect very many people. Most people, but there, and this gets back to this personality framework that I came up with, um, it is just understanding that you have to be the master and you have to always be thinking, is this habit working for me? Because if it's not, then you should let it go. And and sometimes it can be very hard to disrupt a habit. I tried to have the habit of meditating and I easily formed a habit of meditating. And I'd been meditating for, you know, trying to meditate for months. And then finally I was like, this is really just driving me crazy. Like it's not doing anything good for me. And I had to then break the habit of, of, of meditating because it wasn't that I was having a hard time like sitting down and going through, you know, doing it, but it wasn't useful. And so I had to let it go um, because it was just, you know, why have it be part of my day if it's not achieving something for but me? But you
0: love gold marks and achieving. Yeah. Did you feel like you had failed? No. I tried. I gave it. I mean, and I had tried before. I've tried twice.
2: So I'm sort of like, I don't think anything's for everyone, too. Like that's sort of my philosophy. So
0: I was, I was, I, I was fine with that. You also caution that changing a habit is much more challenging if that new habit means altering or losing an aspect of ourselves. And it sounds like this falls into that category.
2: Well, this was something that was very took me a long time to understand. And maybe people have experienced this. It's like sometimes when people really struggle with the habit, it's because there's some essential part of their nature that they feel like they have to compromise. So my favorite example about this was when I was talking to a friend of mine who wanted to start going to bed earlier. She had a little kid, and she and her husband were – and I was like, well, why do you stay up to, like, tell me what's happening? And what was happening is, like, like around 11 or midnight, she and her husband would go, like, to their library and sit and eat nuts – And talk about their day. And she's like, we really should be going to sleep, like, two or three hours later, but we just can't do it. And as I was talking to her, it became clear that she didn't want to relinquish her idea of herself as, like, this urban, nightlife, you know, sophisticated person to become what to her was like a suburban drudge. She went to bed at 9.30 p.m. You know, it was part of her idea of herself as a certain kind of person. Or, I mean, I read that Diana Trilling wrote a memoir and she was talking about how she and her husband couldn't, it was very hard for them to give up smoking because they didn't want to be the kind of people who didn't smoke. Because like the cool people were smoking. This was a long time ago. The cool people were the people who smoked and the loser people were the people who didn't smoke. And they were like, we don't want to be losers like them, even though we want to quit smoking. So they had to like change their worldview about themselves so that they could be the kind of person who didn't smoke. And this comes up more often, like I didn't, it took me a long time to recognize this, but often when there is somebody where it's like they keep saying, I really, really, really want to do this and yet I can't do this. One of the things that I, I've heard from tons of people since the book came out is I listed a bunch of identities that people had to have to compromise because it's somehow bad for them. And I use the example of a Southerner. And I've had so many Southerners being like, why are you saying it's bad to be a Southerner? And I'm like, Maybe for you it's not bad to be a southerner, but I put that in the book because a friend of mine was like, "For me, being a southerner meaning means eating a certain way, means drinking a certain way. It's like a certain kind of life. It's a certain kind of um, party. And if I, I have to, and she's like, I have to think about how I can be southern in a way that is like better for me. You know? So for her, like, but not necessarily for everyone. And so." Um, But it can be poignant and difficult to sort of let go of these things. I'm a workaholic, right? How can you get off work at 6 o'clock every night
0: if what your identity is is I'm a workaholic? So something has to give. Or if being happy means doing work, work worth doing. The last thing I want to ask you about is your manifesto. I love manifestos. You have a wonderful manifesto in Better Than Before. And I was wondering if we could close our interview with you reading the manifesto. Oh,
2: absolutely. I love it. It's
0: really inspiring. So I'm going to get it from the book. It's The Habits Manifesto from Gretchen Rubin's latest book.
2: What we do every day matters more than what we do once in a while. Make it easy to do right and hard to go wrong. Focus on actions, not outcomes. That's like, you can't say like, um, I'm going to lose 30 pounds. It's better to say like, I'm going to eat healthy. Um, By giving something up, we may gain. Things often get harder before they get easier. When we give more to ourselves, We can ask more from ourselves. We're not very different from other people, but those differences are very important. It's easier to change our surroundings than ourselves. We can't make people change, but when we change, others may change. We should make sure the things we do to feel better don't make us feel worse. We manage what we monitor. Once we're ready to begin, begin now.
0: Gretchen Rubin, thank you so much for being here with me today. You can find out more about Gretchen Rubin, her books, her podcasts, and all the other ways she reaches out to the world at GretchenRubin.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for being here. Remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference,
1: or we can do both. Thank you for joining me here today. Thank you. This episode of Design Matters was recorded at the Northside Festival in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, on June 10th, 2016. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox, with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The podcast is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place.